This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we dig deep into the heart of the creative process and the physical toll it takes on one's body. We look at the role of empathy in preaching and songwriting and performing with our guest, Sherry Cothran, who is a singer, a songwriter, a preacher, and an author. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Sherry Cothran. From 1995 through the early 2000s, she was the lead singer of the Evan Roods, a touring rock and roll band signed to Mercury Records. Discerning a call to ministry, in 2006, Cothran went to seminary at Vanderbilt University and became a full-time pastor, though she's quick to remind folks who ask that she did not leave rock and roll behind. For many years, she pastored the West Nashville United Methodist Church, and in 2015, she was the artist-in-residence at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary. With her husband, who is also a minister, she recently relocated to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Brian McLaren calls Reverend Sherry Cothran a rare combination, an artistic spiritual trifecta, a first-rate singer-songwriter, a dynamic performer, and a trained theologian. She's got two new projects we'll be talking about today. The first is a book called Tending Angels, Stories from the Front Lines of Heaven and Earth, and she's also just released a new album of her songs called Hundreds of Ways to Kneel and Kiss the Ground, also known by its title, Kiss the Ground, which gets its name from a verse by the 13th century Persian mystic poet Jalaluddin Rumi. We spoke to Catherine back in 2012 in an episode entitled Sermons in Song. Reverend Sherry Catherine, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. Great to be with you today. I want to get started by talking about your new book, Tending Angels, and in it, you mention a moment when you had a chance to talk to another musician, Emmy Lou Harris. You mentioned to her that you were now a pastor, and Harris replied, singing is the highest form of prayer. So that's really where I want to start. You've been both singing and preaching for a while now, and I'd love, I'd love to just jump in and ask, how does singing and preaching intertwine for you? To me, they really come from the same place. I noticed in homiletics, you know, with John McCour, who kind of got me back into all this, his fault, really. He told me in my first preaching class that I needed to work music into my sermonic space in the pulpit, and I said yes, and the kind of adventure began there. And I noticed when I started preaching that the sermon comes from the same place in the diaphragm as singing does. And I noticed that the space was very similar you're really trying to draw people into an experience, a moment of soul, a moment of the art of God kind of being revealed in the world. In preaching, we say, you know, it's an invasion of spirit. And I really feel that singing is very similar. You're really trying to channel this divine energy into the world. 
So you say that singing comes so, from a from a similar place in the diaphragm. You mean bodily when you sing, you feel the same muscles moving and you feel the same bodily action happening when you sing as when you preach. Am I following that correctly? You are correct. I remember John said to me, he's written a lot of books on the topic. He said, you know, when you preach, your singing is going to get a lot stronger because you're going to be strengthening that muscle. And he was so right. I was preaching every week and I realized I didn't have to practice as much because that muscle was already really strong. Whereas in singing, you know, if you don't sing for a while, you've got to start practicing again to get that muscle going. So it's so interesting how the body and the soul, you know, the the mind-body-soul connection is so strong in that it comes from the same physical place, but it also comes from the same spiritual space. And so when we're talking about this and we're talking about things coming from the same spiritual place and the same physical place, when we think about that in terms of the way that a preacher prepares, I'm imagining that my listeners may have a vague idea about how a pastor prepares a sermon or how a musician prepares a song to sing. But if you could walk us through that process, what are some of the preparations? What are some of the steps that you make in order to have your body be prepared to deliver a sermon effectively or to deliver a song effectively? Well, I mean, there's books called, you know, The Jazz of Preaching, a great book to kind of start from. But if you enter into preaching in order to improvise, you know, on the spot, you have to know your subject really well, kind of like a finely tuned musician. If you're going to go out on stage and make it seem effortless, then you have to put a lot of effort into it (laughs) on the front end. So I put a lot of time into study writing and prep and meditation on a sermon. And I would do the same with a song. It takes a while to write it. It takes a while to construct it to where it's finely tuned. And then you might go out and perform it very differently than it was recorded because it's an in-the-moment kind of thing. You telling me about that process is fascinating. So this is the process of how one sort of creates the sermon, creates the song. I also want to ask a follow-up question. Are there things that delivering a sermon in the moment, either improvised or from a manuscript, or delivering a song in the moment, either from memory or from sheet music, are there demands that that kind of activity makes on your body that are maybe unexpected to a person who may be sitting in the audience? And if that's the case, what what are some of the ways that you prepare for those demands that either singing or preaching makes on your body in that moment? Well, they say that to preach a 20-minute sermon, for instance, is kind of like working a really long, really hard eight-hour day. In that 20 minutes, you're channeling, you're packing in a lot of inspiration, and you want to sort of channel it. You don't want to let it get kind of backed up in you, you know. (laughs) But there's still that kind of weight on you that is a little tiring. So you realize that you're trying to inspire a room full of people and that has a certain toll on your body. So for me to prepare, it just try to stay in shape, number one. But when I do a show, it's very similar. You know, I'll be spent, I guess, afterwards. 
so what I'm hearing you saying, and that that's an amazing statistic that I hadn't heard before, that preaching a 20-minute sermon can have the same physical effect on your body as working an eight-hour day. And so that means that at the end of preaching a sermon, you are ready almost for rest, maybe for a nap. And this, yeah. and I'm hearing a similar sort of thing about when you're performing a set in front of people, the energy that is required. And is it just physical energy or is it also emotional energy? I think it's emotional energy. I mean, something that I've learned to do over time is to do a lot more channeling than getting caught in the moment where I'm a lot more concerned about my performance than I am the experience that people are having. So I think it's a combination of being able to deliver a powerful experience, but also realize that people are receiving it and receptive to it. And a lot of it has to do with how receptive people are. You hear entertainers particularly talking about hard audiences or easy audiences, you know. It can be with preaching, too. It's always a matter of how involved are the people in the preaching moment. Are they with you? Are they engaging with you? Do they want to hear what you have to say? Do they want to hear the word, you know, kind of open up? Or are they resistant to it? So that's a whole other level of prayer and inviting the Holy Spirit to be in the moment and that kind of thing. So what I'm hearing you saying is that when you're performing or when you're preaching, and I guess preaching is a, is a style of performance too, you aren't just worrying about the technical aspects of what you're doing, but there's an aspect where you also have to be worrying about the audience and worrying about the reactions of the audience. Is there an empathic demand? Is that what I'm hearing? You have to have empathy with the audience and be kind of tuning into their vibe while you're doing this thing that is very technical and very self-absorbed? Am I hearing that correctly? I think so. I think if you listen particularly to preachers in certain traditions that are more charismatic, there's a tendency to energize the audience in a kind of improvisational way, much like I would with my voice or with a performance with crescendo and with more quiet, still moments. So you're crafting the experience for the spirit to enter in and be active, but because you're kind of medium for that experience, you're always looking for the audience to gauge how they're receiving it. Sometimes that changes over the course of the concert or the sermon. You might have to backpedal a little bit and take the tone of the people who are there and listen to what they need to hear. And sometimes the sermon changes because they need to hear something different than what you've prepared. So if I'm hearing you correctly, in real time, and you mentioned this in terms of improvisational preaching, but it sounds like you mean this for all preaching, that you may change or alter something about the sermon in the moment based on what you're getting back from a given audience. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. That's amazing. Well, you know, that's why we have all this education. <laughs> to prepare you for that moment of, of, of going off script and, and responding to what is right there in front of you. Yeah, because you can't really go off script well unless you know the script really well. And so any anyone who's at the top of their game will tell you that I've had to really, really study and prepare so that I can make it seem like I'm not prepared. <laughs> 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and musician, the Reverend Sherry Cothran. We're discussing her new book, Tending Angels, and her new album, Kiss the Ground. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and musician, the Reverend Sherry Cothran. We're discussing her new book, Tending Angels, and her new album, Kiss the Ground. Well, let's turn specifically now to the book, Tending Angels, and I'd love to hear a little bit about how this book came to be. Yes, this book is a collection of blogs that I actually wrote during my time as senior pastor at West Nashville United Methodist. I had gone there as a student in seminary. I was planning on moving into community development and just basically worked there for a year and helped them build programs for homelessness and dealing with hunger and poverty and the urban issues that were kind of at the back door of the church. And I ended up saying yes to being appointed as a student pastor and then associate and then senior pastor. And... I just fell in love with the work and felt that over time it was such a healing work. And I wanted to write stories to just tell people, hey, the the people that I'm seeing in the homeless community, the people that I'm seeing who are struggling with food insecurity, these are really normal people <laughs> who have just had extraordinary circumstances in their lives in which there was no community to catch them. There was no family or relative or friend to put them up and give them the relief they needed until they got from point A to point B. And so I just was seeing a lot of people fall through the cracks of society, and I was also seeing that these people were also under a kind of extreme judgment from the rest of society. And none of that made sense to me. And so I just wanted to share some of the real stories of how people ended up there and the healing that took place in me and the people that I worked with when we engaged with particularly the homeless community. You mentioned that you had originally wanted to go into community development and you got pulled away from that into pastoring. And so I've got kind of two questions. First of all, for my listeners that don't know, what is community development? And then secondly, what was it in pastoring that fulfilled that same kind of desire in you that you were wanting to fulfill with community development, but that pulled you in that direction instead? So let's start first of all with, what do you mean when you say you wanted to go into community development? Well, community development can happen on several different stages of society. It can happen in the political arena, where you're, you know, doing city planning or urban planning, that kind of thing. And it can also happen at a grassroots organizing level where you're working with churches and 
citizens and you might be working with the local government to create programs for people who suffer, basically. People who are oppressed, people who are struggling with poverty, people who are struggling with food insecurity. So it's basically a, a kind of organizing for social justice. And I wanted to do that in helping churches connect with their communities because I really felt like churches were uniquely positioned in these communities to really be these kind of safe haven, sanctuary kinds of places, sort of a lifeboat in the urban storms that we see going on in so many of our cities today with gentrification and lack of affordable housing, the things that are just pushing people out who don't have resources. And I saw that churches could be forces for change in the world if we were able to really channel our resources and our energy in that direction. And also just was convicted by my own faith that, you know, Jesus aligned himself with people who suffered from these kinds of particularly special diseases. And I really felt like, hey, this is the work of Christ. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And this will lead the way for us. So I set out to do that. And my mentor at the time, Doug Meeks, who was at Vanderbilt, he was my advisor and also a wonderful author of books like God's Economy. And this was really, really up his alley. And so I trusted his voice. And he just kind of talked me into being a pastor. <laughs> he said, you know, you can do this in the church and we need you to do this in the church as a pastor. And he was trying to recruit what he called radicals. <laughs> Rabbi Rami Shapiro calls us holy rascals. But he was calling us radicals at the time. And so I just said yes to that and walked into it and walked into this church and ended up doing that at a, on a small scale, on a local level. I created a community where several agencies came to work with refugees and people in prison and their families. And we had an immigrant church there and we had a huge food pantry in the basement and we did lots of community meetings, and it really did become kind of that place that I had envisioned, but it was really, really difficult to sustain at, at the same time. When I was reading the book, I had kind of an arresting moment reading the book. So at one point in Tending Angels, you write, there is a divine purpose. Dreams don't come true. They are true. And I'll, I'll say that that line just stopped me cold. It's a gauntlet thrown down in the face of despair, meaninglessness. And I, I sat with that line for a long time when I read it. I'd love to just dig into that line, that there, there's a divine, that you believe absolutely that there's a divine purpose. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I was a rock star. <laughs> and that was a big dream. And I saw the other side of that dream. You know, we had a number one song and... I was with the dream manager and the dream label. You know, these guys are really big in their industry and saw a lot of that dream come true. And then I also was on the opposite end of that dream, feeling it kind of falling apart and seeing that it was being put back together and had to make a decision whether I wanted to put my energy into that or not. And kind of had an epiphany during all of that. And that was, exactly that line, you know, dreams don't come true, 
they already are true. And what I came to realize over a long period of trying to unpack what it means to chase a dream, as uh, the story is about uh, Steven Spielberg's quote, it's the soul whispering to you, you know, is the soul whispering your dream to you. And so what I saw in the rock and roll world is that we are so susceptible to chasing something that's out there, something on the horizon, and influencing who we need to influence and doing whatever we need to do to get that target dream. And we think it's going to bring us fulfillment. But I saw on the other side of the dream, you know, it's, it's like one of my Lakota friends says, when I talk to him about it, he says, you know, sometimes we just have to peek behind the curtain. And I said, yeah, you're right. And there's nothing there. <laughs> so I came to understand it took me probably 10 years to heal from that life. And I realized that I invested a lot of time, energy, money, passion, put a lot of things on the line to pursue what I thought was the dream. And I think we do that with the American dream. We turn the dream into a commodity. And when the soul whispers our sort of deepest yearnings and longings to us, we think immediately, well, this this must be something that can make me money or make me successful or make me famous. And we think that will get us what we want. But what I realized over time was that the dream is not out there. It's inside of me. And if I can make a connection with that, then I'm going to be fulfilled and sustained. And I'm going to, you know, in a sense, find my soul home. I'm really happy to hear you reference that Steven Spielberg quote, because that brings me to another point in the book that made me think and stopped me, because in Tending Angels, you also go on to write that the journey of faith is often a pathway of learning to connect you to your true identity. And you've been talking about that already, but I'd love to really dig in, because your biography, when I recounted it at the beginning of the show, it goes in so many different directions, musician, author, pastor, keynote speaker. Do you ever think about how you would sum up your own true identity? And what would what would you say if someone were to ask you, okay, you say the journey of faith is to take you on a pathway to connect your, to your true identity. What have you learned, Sherry Catherine? <laughs> I think my true identity is one of being a contemplative. I find myself drawn more to the writings of Thomas Merton, Thomas Keating, Richard Rohr, you know, a lot of the uh, women mystics of, you know, past centuries. When I was in my rock band, I was, I realized the other day, I was like, man, I was reading Thomas Merton the whole time. You know, I took him on the plane with me. I took him on the buses. And I was kind of clinging to his writing as sanity during that time. And when I left my band, I even went up to Gethsemane, the monastery where he was, and spent a lot of time with a nun up there and just praying and, and walking and trying to understand my path. And for me, I had to accept my path is really one of a contemplative. So maybe I'm a contemplative artist or a contemplative author or a contemplative pastor, but whatever role that 
I end up playing and expressing myself artistically in that comes from that place of contemplation. And we need one another so we can figure that out. Um, in 12-step groups, we say that we're stabilized by giving service. It's giving service that helps us to get through the dark nights in our lives. And it's so true because it's those moments when we're reaching out to help someone that it gives us this kind of like emotional stabilization. And I know that I've experienced that and, and certainly other people have who, who show up for these things. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, musician, and contemplative, the Reverend Sherry Catherine. We're discussing her new book, Tending Angels, and her new album, Kiss the Ground. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and musician, the Reverend Sherry Cothran. We're discussing her new book, Tending Angels, and her new album, Kiss the Ground. So your new album, Kiss the Ground, takes its title from a line by the Persian mystic poet Jalaluddin Rumi. And a couple of songs on the album take their inspiration from his poetry as well. So what does a 21st century Christian pastor find in a 13th century Muslim mystic poet? Well, sometimes I say I get the sayings of Rumi and the sayings of Jesus confused. I don't really, but I think that Christians have so much to learn from the poets, the Sufi poets, um, Rumi and Hafiz, because they really channel divine love. This is something that we have lost touch with in our Christian journey. And I think their poetry in particular helps us to have images that may sometimes get lost in the ancient speech from Bible. And, you know, Bible's been through so many translations that maybe some of the original language of the beauty of divine love has been lost. We don't always focus on those scripture passages like Song of Songs, for instance. Uh, I think Cheryl Exum in her Song of Songs commentary says that this is the only book in the Bible that was written by a woman, and it's some of the most beautiful love poetry in existence. And it really does talk about a kind of ecstatic love. And this is, you know, Ruby's poetry. He is channeling that, you know, he, he was a scholar. He talks a lot about uh, the Christian journey, and he's very in touch with that aspect of why we are so drawn to Christ. And a lot of times we don't necessarily want to admit it, but we're drawn to unconditional love. We're drawn into that space where we can see the beauty inside of us. And Rumi speaks so freely about that beauty. You know, I just sang a a song last night, uh, Let the beauty you love be what you do. But the beauty you love turn you around. We have beauty all around us. You know, we have a beautiful world, babies being born every day. And there's so much beauty in the world, but we often don't see it. There's also an instinct in us that wants to resist the fact that it's there because it might call us away from our worries and from our 
but we think of our responsibilities and things like that. So the main reason I'm drawn to his poetry because it gives us a vision of our own journey with Christ. What I love about that line that you just said, let the beauty of love turn us around, I'm aware earlier in the conversation we were talking about the physicality of performance, the physicality of of performing a song, the physicality of performing a sermon. And I'm aware from the little that I know of Rumi, he was not just a Persian Islamic mystic poet, but he was literally one of the whirling dervishes. So when he says, let the beauty that we love turn us around, he's not just talking about an intellectual turning, but he's saying your body will physically be moved by this beauty. Am I, am I remembering that correctly and hearing that correctly? Yeah, it's true. He was a whirling dervish. And I've never been able to see them in person, but I've seen videos. I know that the reason they whirl is because it puts them in an ecstatic state of meditation where they're accessing that internal divinity within themselves. And I think he had a real special relationship with that and was able to put it into language. Speaking of putting things into language, there's another line on your new album, Kiss the Ground, that really stuck with me. And it's the line that says, I carry no burdens, no pain. I have become a riverbed for the rain. And that line just grabbed me and it stuck with me. This is from the song that you wrote called Surrender. And I'd love to hear about your experience of this song. What was it like? What is it like to be in the writing and performing of this particular song when it's almost like you're saying, I'm not doing this. I'm a vessel for something else. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the bass player I had last night, he listened to that song before the show and he's like, wow, what are you living in a fantasy land? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's, this is a dream. You know, I was like, church is a dream. Church is a dream we dream so that we can be with one another in this space, you know, but it's a moment. It's a window. So I think the song is a moment. It's a window into what it means to not listen to the reptile brain that tells us when we get into challenging situations that we can stand and fight or we can run away, you know, the the fight or flight option. And it takes us to a deeper place where we just surrender to whatever God is trying to do in the moment. You hear a lot of authors these days talking about surrendering to your fear, you know, surrendering to your panic or whatever. And it's really the same idea. Even in a physical way, you know, you're... We do these heart openers in yoga. You're you're opening to the experience instead of closing yourself off and trying to muscle through. And most of my life, I've just tried to muscle through. (laughs) You know, put my head down and muscle through. I think in a pastorate, it just didn't work. That divide and conquer, be a hero, be successful at any cost, you know, make people do your will kind of thing, which is what a lot of leaders do. It just didn't work in the church because I was at least saying that I wanted to do the work of Christ. Whether I was able to act on it depended on the day. But in order to do that work, I had to come to my knees, had to come to a place where all I could do was surrender because, you know, as Paul says, in my weakness, I'm strong. And Jean Bernier one of my favorite authors says, we have so much more to offer people out of our weaknesses than out of our strengths and achievements. And I began to understand that 
it was when I was able to have a posture, at least a posture of surrender, that I could find a much easier way forward and I could find solutions and I could let God's love kind of be channeled through me instead of the force of my will. You know, the first step in 12-step programs, (laughs) I'm powerless. (laughs) That's kind of what that's about. I am powerless. But as I'm powerless, I begin to be filled with a greater power. Here's what delights me, absolutely delights me in what you're saying. Because when you said earlier that you were a contemplative and that was sort of the root of how you would describe yourself, I think Western ears oftentimes hears contemplative as someone who is sitting still and is withdrawn from the world. But then we started talking about the poet Rumi and his contemplation drove him to spin and to twirl and to reach an ecstatic state, to be to be bodily engaged. And now, even in the midst of talking about surrender, you 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 described it just now as a posture of surrender. And what what delights me in everything that you're saying is that this is not just contemplation that is withdrawn. It is contemplation that can be active. It can be bodily. It can be involved. Even in weakness, there's still motion. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, and I think it has to be because... What I've seen happen in so many cases is that people will set out to do good and they will have really good intentions with working with homeless, for instance, we use them as an example, and they will have that encounter of experiencing the depth of someone else's suffering and the depth of someone else's pain, and it will just cause them to run away because they'll feel overwhelmed because they can't change it or they they feel like they can't change it. And they are at a loss as to how to interpret this encounter that they've just had. And I really think that people do want to see homeless people housed. I really do feel that at the core, everyone, most everyone, would like to see homelessness solved. If you ask anyone on the street, would you like for there to be a solution to homelessness? They would probably say yes. And yet... I think everyone feels so powerless to do anything about it because it feels so overwhelming. So I think we really need the language of how do we sit with the pain of others and be comfortable enough to just sit with them and hear their story and offer them love. And that's what I found in my journey was it's okay to kind of break apart and feel your own pain and feel the pain of others if you know that there is a force within you that's stronger than the pain. And I think, you know, we live in a society in which we try to numb our pain so much and we try to numb our emotions because we're so afraid they're going to overwhelm us. And surrender is that posture where you're not fighting your emotions and you're not running away from them. You're just surrendering. And I think that's, you know, you can could, you could spend every morning meditating on Rumi's poetry. I think you'd have a better day. <laughs> I have a lot. I've had not a lot, but a couple of people say to me, because I am a hopeful person and I do talk about these things, you're, you know, you're just dreaming of unicorns. <laughs> this is not a reality that you're talking about. And I have to say, look, I've seen some really intense human suffering. I mean, there were times when people were dropped off from the hospital in bloody bandages at my door because hospitals wouldn't keep homeless people in their charge. And so they knew that we were there and they would just drop them off 
And that's suffering, you know, when someone's got half a limb cut off and they can't even stay in the hospital, you know. So I say to people, look, I'm, I feel this way because I've experienced the dark side of human suffering. And that's how I found this path. <laughs> so I'm not ignoring suffering or trying to pretend it's not there or try to numb myself from seeing it. What I'm saying is that there is a divinity that meets us in that suffering and helps us to, I wouldn't say cure it necessarily, but to heal it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and musician, the Reverend Sherry Cothran. We're discussing her new book, Tending Angels, and her new album, Kiss the Ground. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture, and faith. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and musician, the Reverend Sherry Cothran. We're discussing her new book, Tending Angels, and her new album, Kiss the Ground. So from my knowing you all these years and from listening to your music and from reading your work, it's clear that Nashville and the Nashville music scene helped to shape you. And I'd like to hear about and think about that relationship for a moment. So Nashville, in one sense, it's a glamorous tourist spot, and it's got this international image through television and movies. But there are other facets to Nashville, and you've started to touch on them in what you've been saying in the rest of the interview. But I'd really like to hear how you see this city fitting together between that glamorous image and and the reality that you have often seen on the suffering of the people that live on its streets? Well, I mean, it's not unique to Nashville, certainly. And I wouldn't say that Nashville was a hard place for me and a wonderful place at the same time. And I don't live there anymore. I live in Chattanooga now. <laughs> I just moved to Chattanooga in January. But I have experienced both sides of it. Strange. I'm not sure that I've given a lot of thought to that, but... Half of my adult life was spent in the music industry, and then the other half in seminary and working with homelessness as a pastor and being a pastor. And I don't know. I think I think Nashville, like any kind of entertainment-driven city, is a city of broken dreams. And I think a lot of people come there pursuing a dream, and very few people, you know, music business is like a lottery business. You know, very few people win the lottery. So you do have a lot of brokenness there, not just the hunger and homelessness, but people walking around with some broken dreams or 
or striving. You know, there's a lot of striving there as well and, and a lot of competition. They say every third person is a singer-songwriter in Nashville. <laughs> That's true. So if you're a songwriter, you definitely find some community there and some like minds. But you also find that competition, you know, and the and the striving. And and I certainly can relate to that because I've definitely did that for several years. Being on the other side of it as a pastor, I can say that I enjoyed stepping out of the kind of striving and the competition. Not that that isn't in the church because it is. But in my urban context, I was very local. Um, I was kind of in a, a, a tunnel for about 10 years of uh, an intense dealing with uh, the church and human suffering, you know, at my door. So I guess I haven't really reconciled <laughs> those two worlds very well. I just know that I flowed through the music industry with a big dream, and I learned so much from that process. And I also have flowed through the church for a, a similar amount of time. And, you know, I can say that these issues, I think I wrote about this in the book, the issues that I found in, or maybe it's from a, a previous blog, but the issues I found in the music industry, I found similar issues in the church. It's not that you're exempt from that being in the church. It's just that, and I found a lot of compassion and empathy in the music industry, too. But in the church, we at least are saying that we are called to this agreement that we have, which is this covenant with God, to try as best we can to express unconditional love, to try as best we can to align ourselves with those who suffer and to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And that's a different arena. And it's really the only place I've found in the greater world where we're making those agreements and we're trying to live by those agreements. And we don't get it right. We certainly are struggling now in many ways to live by those agreements. But whenever we return to that, whenever we decide that we are going to intentionally try as best we can to live that way, then we do really amazing things <laughs> in the world. It's about that intentionality, you know, setting that intention together as a group, which can be very hard when there's so many disagreements going on right now. You just mentioned that you've left Nashville and now you live in Chattanooga, and that means that you've left the West Nashville United Methodist Church. And so your ministry is shifting in the moment, and it may not have settled out yet, but I'm wondering if you feel comfortable sharing with our listeners kind of how your pastoral role, how you see that changing, and where you see that ending up, either in the near future or in times to come. Well, I am a United Methodist, and so I'm in the appointment system, so... I'm just currently, you know, talking with my DS about what that looks like, so I don't have a whole lot to share right now, but I will be continuing to do work with homelessness, and one of my big passions right now with Tending Angels, I have the music video which highlights a lot of the real reasons that people end up in homelessness, and I got to work with an indie filmmaker on that, and I'm really, really proud of that because it shows the face of homelessness and also just helps us to kind of dig into some of the real reasons that people spiral into it. And it's a cool song, too. So 
and then I have the book Ten Angels. And so for the next year, uh, I'm going to be out trying to motivate people with my own story to take the risk of getting involved, not just giving money. Money is great, but, you know, getting involved one-on-one because I think this is the only thing that's going to really bring about change is if we get into relationships with people who are abandoned and people who are rejected and people who are traumatized and we share love. And I would say probably 90, 98% of the time, you're going to be the one that's changed. I'm hoping to really inspire people in my travels and my talks and concerts to do that. And that's what the book is really for. It's a collection of stories of my own journey, but I really hope that it inspires people to take the risk of taking their own spiritual journey because we all have one. Well, as my interviews come to a close, I have a habit of asking my guests a series of questions, and I usually ask them, what is it that after a time of work still frustrates you? And then from there, I pivot and, and ask what it is that still keeps you hopeful. So let me ask you, first of all, what is it that still frustrates you? Oh, I think I'm frustrated right now with the state of the church, and I wish we could do better. (laughs) So given that you're frustrated by the state of the church, what is it that keeps you hopeful? What keeps me hopeful is still being part of church communities and communities of faithful people who believe that we can, you know, that we can be a center of love and hope and the kind of light, you know, that we want to see in the world, that we can still do that and that we we still carry that within us. And that seed is there if it can be awakened. And I've seen it uh, awakened in some very unlikely places. So that gives me a lot of hope. Well, Reverend Sherry Catherine, it is always a delight to talk to you. Thank you for coming back on the show and thank you for taking time with us today. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. We've been speaking today with the Reverend Sherry Catherine. We've been talking today about her two new projects. The first is the book Tending Angels, Stories from the Front Lines of Heaven and Earth, and also her newly released album of songs, Kiss the Ground. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.